This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. There is a sense in which the Enlightenment people believe that if we use our reason, we, we've, we've gotten out from under the bondage of the church and others, and now we go off and we use our minds and we can really make progress in this world. We can really make a better world. Uh, a good part of this idea of progress came as a direct result of some triumphs in the area of science. But uh, because of the great strides made in science in the late 17th, early 18th century, uh, these Enlightenment kinds of persons felt, well, if we can do it in science, we can do it in other areas as well. Politics, economics, and even religion. We can make progress in terms of religion. Uh, and one of the evidences that they felt they were making progress was they felt there was a decline in superstition. Uh, but they looked around these Enlightenment types and they said, look, there's, there's a lot less superstition. We've used our reason. We've gotten rid of all these sort of uh, superstitious notions. And um, that's a sense of progress. Uh, one fellow, one uh, advocate of the Enlightenment ideals, traced the persistence of superstition to the triumph of Christianity. So he identified superstition with Christianity. So if you want to make progress, you've got to get rid of superstition. And if you want to get rid of superstition, you've got to rationalize Christianity. You've got to apply reason to it. So, they declare autonomy. They exalt human reason. Uh, they feel like great progress can be made. They are very optimistic about the future. And they also have this, this uh, rather romantic notion of nature. For the men of the Enlightenment, what was reasonable was natural. Some of the problems of mankind uh, were viewed to have resulted from deviation from nature. Man had become a victim of all kinds of unnatural influences. Unnatural influences such as the church, the state, the king, conventions of society. These things destroyed man's natural freedom. They corrupted his natural integrity, said some of the Enlightenment types. And so they yearned to return to the simplicity of nature to a time before man had been corrupted by these institutions like the church and the state. You all have heard that phrase, the noble savage. 
Well, that idea really originates in the Enlightenment. And it fits with this idea of nature that there's something noble about the savage who has not been corrupted by the church. The savage who has not been corrupted by the state. He just lives in complete freedom. He doesn't need clothes. He's in freedom. And there's a sense in which you, you see this particular in uh, Rousseau. A desire to get back to nature. There's this, this exaltation of nature as the ideal where man has the most freedom to express himself and to do what he thinks is right. Uh, anyway, this idea of noble savages. You find uh, a number of works coming out in the 17th and 18th century just exalting those who have not been tainted by society and culture. Baron Dolenbach wrote a little sermon, a, po a poem, a poetic sermon uh, called The System de la Nature, but don't worry about that. Uh, and he writes this poem where nature is speaking to man. And Dahlenbach's sermon poem goes like this. Nature is now speaking. This gives you a flavor of what, what I'm getting at here. Return to the dominion of my laws, nature speaking. It is in my empire alone that true liberty reigns. Return then, my child, to thy fostering mother's arms. Trace back thy wandering steps to nature. She will console thee for thine evils. She will drive from thy heart those appalling fears which overwhelm thee. Return to nature, to humanity, to thyself. Do you get a sense of how uh, nature is, is, is this ideal held up to people? And I mean, it's sort of, there's an optimism here, there's a, a sense of autonomy, return to self, uh, an anthropocentrism. Well, that's another key idea, a key word that characterizes the Enlightenment period. These Enlightenment types prided themselves on being tolerant. Uh, they felt, and these people felt, as I said before, exhausted by the religious wars. And what they wanted now was, was, was just tolerance of everybody. Uh, and the result was a, a growing indifference to religion. Religion, I mean, they don't care. The attitude was, we don't care if you have a religion. Just don't be dogmatic about it. You can believe for yourself what you want, but don't require that I believe it. Sound familiar? Vaguely? Uh, the enemy was not religion per se, but religious dogmatism and intolerance. Peter Bale, his name up here, a French writer, said that a belief may be wrong that's okay, but it must be tolerated. Because why? Why must a wrong belief be tolerated? Because nobody has absolute certainty that his views are right. Do you sense a little relativism sort of creeping in here? Well, these are some of the basic words that characterize the Enlightenment period. 
Uh, these are words and ideas that are profoundly secular in orientation. Uh, one, one quick question. You know, I've already sort of suggested that there, there's some, maybe that these ideas have some relevance to us. When I read those words and, and think about them for a moment, my mind immediately goes right back to the 60s. Because you find almost all of these ideas a characteristic uh, of that movement. Uh, this idea of returning to nature. I mean, isn't that, wasn't that very much a part of the 60s movement? Uh, a, a real optimism? We can change the world? We can stop the war in Vietnam? We can make progress? Uh, conventions of society like marriage? We can do without those things. You can believe what you want to believe, but don't impose those beliefs on me. So they're not anti-religion per se. It's just anti-authority. Uh, anti, of course, that's another element. Uh, there's no authority except yourself. It, it's kind of helpful to realize, this is one of the values of history, is that what we think is all brand new and has never been experienced before, even as individuals or cultures, what you find in history is that very similar ideas and movements existed before. Uh, so I think we can all have a little, I don't know, a feel for what the Enlightenment was like because we know what the 60s were like. One of the things I think is interesting is if we look at the 60s, where these ideas first, in our time, sort of emerge. Look at the consequences. In the last 25 or 30 years, 30 years, what kinds of things have happened? And then we look back at the Enlightenment when these ideas first emerge and look at what the consequences of those kinds of things were. So if we want to see what's going to happen, we might get some insight into things by looking at, at the Enlightenment period. Uh, it eventually led to the French Revolution. Total anarchy. There was a, one story about they took a prostitute and took her to a church and put her on the podium and said, this is our priest, a prostitute. And the, the point was is to make a mockery of religion. Religion hindered us. And it, at any rate, the, the French Revolution was, was bloody and chaotic and anarchy. And my question is, I don't know this for a fact. I am not a prophet. I am an historian. I am an historian. Uh, one wonders if what is in our future, if, if, if what I've said is right, and I don't know if it is or not, if the parallels, I mean, there are some parallels, and I don't know if history can always prognosticate the future. Just because this happened before, you can tell us what's going to happen in, uh, in our future. But it is a little disconcerting uh, that uh, that's what was the end of this period before people sort of stopped and said, hey, we can't let this get out of hand. Well, here's one that, just to give you a specific example of something that I've noticed uh, that I've seen in my lifetime that it, it, it is a real transition. Uh, when, when a child of, of, an, of a, an average American decides to, to, to live with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. If that, that happened in the 50s too, we don't want to have any illusions. 
But what happened is uh, Mama and Papa didn't like it. And they may have said, you know, I really disapprove of this and I'm not going to, you know, don't come home. Uh, and culture in general sort of thumbed their nose at people who did that. Today, and since the 60s, the difference is moms and dads say, bring him home. Come on home and let's, you know, let's just act as if this is normal. So there's been a real shift in attitude. What I find terribly interesting is the fact that those parents who grew up in the 50s are the parents who now have the attitude that it's okay for your kid. I know, I know. But I was, I was just saying that culture. So, it's. I mean, I remember being shocked. I was living in Philadelphia and my wife worked at a, at a large hospital. And uh, she became very good friends with, with a lady who was, I think, in her uh, early 60s. She had two or three grown kids. So she was a person, we're talking now back in the, the early 80s, uh, who would have been a, you know, been a, a young married in the 50s. And uh, she, heard, she had all three children were living in, in unmarried relationships and having two or three multiple partners and all of that. And we were struck that her attitude was, hey, they're just kids. Uh, very, very accepting of that. And so what, my, what made me, what jogged me, is, what bothered me was the fact that she was someone who grew up in this, this pristine period of the 50s. My point in stopping here and pausing for a moment is just to look at the value of history, that, that this idea of, of these things being new. The 60s was not new. One can look back at the mid-17th century and see many of the same ideas and attitudes uh, pervading European culture. Uh, at any rate, there are two other words that I think I would add uh, to describe the, uh, the Enlightenment. Uh, these are my own. These are not words that, that uh, originated then. But I think they're true. One is propagandistic. Uh, that is to say that uh, these uh, advocates of this attitude and these, these ideas were not satisfied to simply have these ideas in small communities. They sought to perpetuate their ideas in others. They wanted to disseminate their ideals to the culture in general. Uh, before the Enlightenment, before the, the mid-17th century, uh, most of the intellectual writings of the time were written in Latin, which by definition meant that they'd be read by a small group of people. Academic, intellectual kinds of writing was still predominantly in Latin. But with 17th century and particularly with the Enlightenment kinds of people, there is this, this idea of, of putting, putting these ideas in the language of the people. They wanted to disseminate these ideas of autonomy and reason and optimism and progress and nature and toleration. Uh, for example, Isaac Newton wrote one of the most famous books in history, the Principia Mathematica, his book on uh, uh, science. Uh, and it was written in Latin. Very few people could read it, and even fewer could understand it. But Voltaire, the great 
uh, deist sort of, of uh, intellectual in France read it, loved it, and then translated it into different language so that more people could understand it. Voltaire had something of an agenda. He packaged some of the ideas of Newton for a wider audience so as to enlighten the people, not just other intellectuals, but the people. And what happened when Voltaire translated a Newton's ideas, not only into to a language they can understand, but, but he reduced them, put, them on, put the cookies on the lower shelf so people could understand some of his ideas. What happened is the world looked beautiful through the eyes of, of, a, of a Voltaire and with the ideas of, of Newton. But also what happened is, is that you have this idea in this propagandistic sort of way is not only are these new ideas disseminated and portrayed in the nicest possible way, but this, these popular writings also debunk all of the old traditions. It's saying the old guys, the old authorities are all aged and, and outdated and, and corrupt. Let's look to a new way of thinking. Uh, you see this, 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 again, this clear shift. There's an attempt on the part of intellectuals in the 17th century to put the past behind them. The past is outdated. Uh, the old authorities are, are no longer useful to us. Let's set our eyes forward. And let's, let's embrace new ideas, new hopes, new aspirations. One other thing to note here, not only were they propagandistic, seeking to, to disseminate their views, uh, but it was somewhat elitist. For all of its concern about mankind and nature and all of that sort of thing, there was a real elitism that characterized the advocates of the Enlightenment. Uh, they tended to view the masses as ignorant, easily led. They were somewhat condescending to them. Uh, but most of these chaps were very happy to be found in the company of aristocrats and to receive uh, benefactions uh, from well-established uh, well and, and wealthy uh, aristocrats of the old order. So there's perhaps a little bit of hypocrisy at this point. One historian calls these folks liberal elitists, with a conscience. I sometimes think that might be appropriate kind of label for some folks today. Liberal elitists with a conscience. So, anyway, I think you've gotten the picture. And my point, my purpose this morning is just to try to introduce you to some of the basic ideas flowing around this movement we've called the Enlightenment. That's the basic purpose. Forerunners. Uh, these are the folks who come along in that period uh, just after Reformation and the, the Enlightenment builds upon some of their ideas. Again, I want to make, make it clear that, that Newton and Locke uh, were not necessarily Enlightenment persons per se, but they did give rise to some of those ideas. 
Sir Isaac Newton, dates 1642, died 1727. Now, Newton himself uh, repudiated a number of the ideas of the Enlightenment. Uh, for example, he would not have uh, thought of himself as autonomous. He would have looked to Christianity and the Bible as autonomous. He wrote a number of commentaries on biblical books. Uh, but his book, the Principia, served the Enlightenment in this particular way. This book was such a breakthrough in science that it seemed to, to Enlightenment types to exemplify the power of human reason. Look what reason can do. We can discover the keys to the universe. His Principia, published in 1687, Principia Mathematica. And even though people couldn't read it in Latin, although it was popularized by Voltaire, uh, the general impression was given that if that reason can unlock the key to the universe, we can understand the physical world. We can make sense of this world. And so this held out, this really fed this, this optimism, this sense of making progress. And again, if we can make progress, if we can understand how the universe really works, then perhaps we can apply our reason to other areas of life and make progress again. Uh, Newton is another key uh, point in the history of Europe. For centuries, if you wanted to get wisdom, uh, what did you do? If you were an intellectual in the Reformation period, what did they, where did they go for their sources of inspiration? They went back. They went back to Augustine, back to the Bible. But with Newton, we're on the threshold of a new world. It, it, it appears as if we're looking forward now. We're not looking back for wisdom. We're looking forward. So there's almost a change in direction about how to make progress. Uh, the Renaissance, the Reformation said, we need to go back and get these models from the early church or, or Roman Greek models. Now there's this idea of discarding all of that, leaving it behind and looking forward, pressing on ourselves. Look what we can do when we do that. Look at Sir Isaac Newton. He's discovered the key to the universe. Now we've learned subsequently that Newtonian physics is not quite what it was cracked up to be. But nevertheless, at the time, it was considered absolutely stupendous what he had accomplished. Newton had set a new standard for what the human mind could achieve. There was a sense now of, of enormous confidence of what could be achieved by reason. Reason alone. John Locke, another forerunner, 1632 to 1704. Uh, Newton had looked outward toward the universe. Locke looked inward to human nature. He seemed to demonstrate that even human nature could be explained. His famous book was An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. He wrote some other famous books, but this is the one I'm mentioning now. Published in 1690. And Locke established 
a new psychology. Whereas Newton said we could understand the physical universe, Locke says we now can understand the internal universe, the universe inside us. What makes us tick? What is the key to human nature? And this work seemed to hold out the possibility that we could indeed understand human nature. He argued, that is Locke, that the human being enters this world tabula rasa, or rasa. I think I've spelled that, haven't I? Tabula rasa. That is to say, we are blank slates. And one's personality, one's psychological nature is the product of his environment and his experiences. And the implication is, is that if we can control those things, we can produce superior human beings. Some of the assumptions that Locke's psychology makes are, one, human nature is changeable. And I guess uh, an implication of that is the second point, that human nature can be improved. Human nature is changeable. All you have to do is change the environment, change his experiences, and you can write whatever personality you want on that tabula rasa. If we are blank slates, then if you can simply get in control of that individual, you can make a new and improved human being. He can be changed. His nature can be changed. It can be improved. The third thing to note about Locke's psychology is that in effect, it rejects the historic orthodox teaching of original sin. Locke's psychology does not take that into full consideration. He has this idea that men can be improved by changing their circumstances and their experiences. Uh, a more orthodox Christian view would say what's needed to change the heart is a work of the Holy Spirit. But Locke was much more optimistic that uh, experiences and so forth could be changed and modified by writing new experiences putting a new environment, putting that on that tabula rasa, and making an improvement in human nature. Again, you can see how that kind of thinking would create optimism, a sense that progress could be made if we just put our minds to it. You see the optimism that's implicit in all of that? Okay, those are just forerunners. These are guys who set the stage for some of these other ideas that I've mentioned earlier. One other group I want to mention just briefly are the Philosophes. I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly, but I think that's right. The Philosophes. Uh, these were particularly French intellectuals. Uh, they were very strong in propagating uh, these ideas of progress and optimism in the 18th century. Uh, an interesting group. Uh, they were not necessarily uh, had the same vocation or anything like that. Uh, they wrote on a number of topics, but the one thing that sort of keeps this group uh, with the same focus, that reason, I mean, they're, they're very diverse in many ways, but they have one thing in common, is that their interests center on man. 
And one philosophe wrote, and I think this is probably generally characteristic of this French intellectual movement of the 18th century. They said, man is the unique point to which we must refer everything. That's another way of saying man is the measure of all things. Uh, this, this man-centeredness, this sense of autonomy is very clearly uh, articulated among this, this, intel- this French intellectual movement of the 18th century. Uh, they had all kinds of ideas that, that we could uh, have utopias. You, you find the philosophes talking about establishing a utopia, uh, world peace, uh, establishing a perfect society. Uh, what's inter- does, does that sound familiar again? I mean, does this sound like the 60s? Uh, again and again, world peace. Uh, this idea of utopian governments and perfect society. Very, very interesting. Uh, just some, I just mentioned these names here. Voltaire was one of these philosophes. Diderot, Dallenbach. Uh, I probably should note that, uh, yeah, these are peace brother types. Uh, there are some differences. And one of the differences is that Voltaire, although he was very radical in many, many ways. I mean, he was a guy who, again, the analogy with the 60s is striking. But instead of getting married, he simply lived with. Uh, this particular very prominent intellectual woman for some years before she dumped him for somebody else. Uh, but here's a guy, I mean, he's, he's saying, let's, let's, let's forego the conventions of society. And he did it. But the one thing that distinguishes him from some of the other philosophes is that he still retained some vague belief in a deity. He's much more akin, to, he's, he's really pretty much a deist. Uh, Diderot and Dallenbach were self-professed atheists. very, very strong in their their conviction. This has all been uh, mainly to get us oriented to this, this new era. We have left, we, we looked at some of the uh, earlier, the Middle Ages, we looked at the Reformation period, and now we've gotten into the Enlightenment, a whole different era, different thinking, different mood. Let's look at the some of the religious aspects of the Enlightenment. Deism. Uh, I'm going to look at a couple of of, uh, early expressions of this. So first, I want to look at uh, Lord Herbert of Cherbury. C-H-E-R. His dates are 1583 to 1648. He really is a precursor to all of this. But he is one of the first to articulate ideas that later came to be known as deism. Uh, Lord Herbert is considered the father of deism. That would be an ideal test question. The father of deism was Lord Herbert of Cherbourg. He wrote a book called De Veritate, On the Truth, published in 1624, in which he, which he essentially argued for a natural religion, a religion that is not dependent upon supernatural revelation. Uh, 
a religion on which all rational people could agree. Lord Herbert had a conviction that all men had certain innate principles, that they all fundamentally uh, had these basic ideas called notitiae communis, or uh, innate principles. Uh, And these were imprinted on the heart of every man. And he would ultimately acknowledge by God that God had put these uh, axioms on the heart of every person. Lord Herbert identified five innate principles within man. This is another way of saying a natural religion. That all people, all rational people, would acknowledge. The five were. The five axioms, the five innate principles that every person understood, according to Lord Herbert. First, God exists. One does not need to go to Scripture for this. It is self-evident. Secondly, it is also self-evident. It is innate within man to know that this God who exists ought to be worshipped. No need for special revelation. The third innate principle is that one ought to practice virtue. One ought to be kind to others, for example. That you ought to practice virtue was an innate principle. Self-evident. No need for Scripture to tell you that. Fourth, that there is an obligation to to repent of your sins an obligation to repent of your sins. He says that's innate. And finally, that there are rewards and punishments after death. For him, for Lord Herbert, this is the essence of natural religion. This is something that is basically shared by all human beings. This is the basis of true religion, these innate ideas. And he felt that if you acknowledge these things, it would lead to harmony and toleration. Harmony and toleration. So Lord Herbert is the guy who gets this whole deism thing off the ground. There's another group that are, I think, sometimes sort of confused with deists. Uh, but they probably can be distinguished from deists. Uh, they're sort of in a funny position. I'll try to articulate uh, some of their views. They're called, I've called them, rational supernaturalists. Rational supernaturalists. Uh, the first advocate is John Tillotson, Archbishop of Canterbury in England. You see his date, 1630 to 1694. He was one of the famous preachers of his day, 
sermons were widely read. Tillotson said that religion could be reduced to only three basic ideas. That all true religion has only three ideas. Once you get through all the other stuff, you boil it all off the top, what you have left are these three basic ideas. They will seem familiar to you after having listed those of Lord Herbert. The three are of Tillotson. The three basic ideas of religion are that there is a God. Two, this God requires you to live virtuously. And three, God will reward the righteous and punish the wicked. That is the essence of true religion. Now think about that for just a moment. If that's true religion, if that's what real truth is, do you notice there's no mention of Christ? Uh, there's no mention of an atonement? Uh, yeah, there's, there's almost an implied works orientation here. Uh, something very, very different from Orthodox historic Christianity. And here you have the Archbishop of Canterbury articulating these kinds of ideas. T-I-L-L-O-T-S-O-N. Tillotson. Now the main difference between Lord Herbert and Tillotson is simply this. Tillotson believed that natural revelation still needed to be supplemented a little bit by supernatural revelation. Still needed some supplementation uh, from revelation. That's why he's called a rational supernaturalist. He still does have a place, although not a very big place, for special revelation. Yes. So there still needs to be some supplementation. Uh, his basic point was that it's not that special revelation adds anything new to natural this natural religion of three points. It only clarifies. It doesn't add, but it clarifies. That's the purpose of special revelation. It does not add. It only clarifies. Natural revelation. Further, he said, that the only way we can know that special revelation is truly from God. The only way that we can know that special revelation is really from God is if it does not contradict those principles that He established from natural religion. The only way we know the Bible is true is if it corresponds and does not contradict those three points of natural of a natural religion a religion that doesn't need supernatural revelation so instead of having uh, uh, nature confirm supernatural special revelation it does just the opposite 
Scripture confirms the more basic natural religion. Uh, that's very interesting sort of uh, development here. The other person I'll mention is John Locke. Uh, he too might be put in this category of a rational supernaturalist. Just as he is a forerunner of the Enlightenment, he is a forerunner of deism. Now, it's true that, that uh, Locke did think of himself as a Christian. So we don't want to make any mistakes there. Uh, and he does address the question of religion in some of his writings. He divides religious knowledge into three categories. Locke does. He said there are some, there is some knowledge that is based on human reason. It's genuine knowledge. It's unaided. It's based simply on reason and not Scripture. It is a natural kind of religion. It's according to reason. He said there is another kind of religious knowledge that is above reason. It requires faith. It requires faith. That kind of knowledge. There is knowledge according to reason. Religious knowledge according to reason. Make sure you say that religious knowledge according to reason. Secondly, there is religious knowledge that is above reason and requires faith. And third, there is religious knowledge that is contrary to reason. He wrote a book in 1695 called The Reasonableness of Christianity. And in this book, he talks very much about some of those ideas that must be rejected because they are contrary to reason. He rejected, as a result, some fundamental beliefs of historic Christianity, one of which was the necessity of belief in Christ for salvation. He believed that that was contrary to reason. To say that the only way you can be saved is by belief in Christ. That the only way you can be saved is by faith in Christ. He didn't deny that one could be saved by faith in Christ, but that it was not the only way. That didn't seem to make rational sense to John Locke. Uh, he pointed to the fact that in the Old Testament there were those he believed who were saved who did not believe in Christ. And with that, that idea in his mind, he, he carried that over and said that even today, in the New Testament period, that one did not, who had never heard of Christ, even if he had lived according to his natural understanding of God, if he took those basic innate principles that were mentioned by Lord Herbert, he could still get to heaven without specifically believing in Christ. So you have in John Locke this notion that the, of the necessity of believing in Christ for salvation is not an absolute. 
This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.